Good morning, Your Honors, and may it please the court. My name is Christopher Scott with Southern Minnesota Regional Legal Services, and I represent the appellant, Cindy Ali. Your Honors, this case is about a mother being able to care for her severely developmentally disabled child without the constant threat of losing her Section 8 subsidized housing assistance. In this case, the hearing officer adopted the respondent's erroneous interpretation of the federal regulation at issue and the Court of Appeals Counsel, affirmed what that we, decision. If we agree with you, what do we do with the issue um, as it relates to um, disparate treatment for those who work outside the home and those who would, um, who are in your client's position? Yes, Your Honor. I, that decision to create a benefit for developmentally disabled people in this particular regulation is a benefit that is okay that HUD can create for these types of people. I understand that respondent identifies that there's this idea that a, a, a family member who's working outside the home, their income is essentially going to be counted towards their subsidy uh, calculation. And if they're paying people in the home, that they're going to receive the benefit. Whereas my client, uh, Ms. Ali, she would ultimately be getting a benefit by uh, not having her income included. Again, I believe that's just the benefit that HUD has created here. It, it's that mother's choice. As amicus has laid out, uh, there's several advantages to in-home care and in-home care, particularly by family members. Uh, that demonstrates that the, the, the care that these people are providing for the, the development of disabled people is essential to keeping them in the home. I do think that there is another example that combats that example about this mother working outside the home. Say you have a, a recipient in appellant's situation, but you also have a family member who's not working outside the home, but is essentially paying third-party care providers to come in the home. How the Section 8 program works is your subsidy is going to be based on your income. So if this latter uh, mother or family member uh, is not working outside the home, she's ultimately going to get a, a subsidy based on zero income. Whereas if it's, if it's calculated against a person in appellant's uh, situation, they will be uh, penalized essentially on their subsidy. They'll be paying money for, they'll be paying a subsidy amount based on $33,000 that's in this case. Uh, that is, I believe that's an unreasonable interpretation and outcome because it's ultimately not giving both families the full benefit of the developmental disability waiver that uh, each is being provided. So again, I believe that this person who's working outside the home, that's their choice. They may not necessarily be, uh, feel as though they're qualified uh, to provide the services that this disabled person needs. That's something that the state, when this consumer-directed program uh, is put in place and it's being worked on between the recipient family and the, uh, the county providers, uh, they, they develop this budget based on the needs that this household uh, needs. And they assess whether or not a family member who's electing to provide that care is actually capable of doing so. Counsel, did your client pay income tax on the money at issue here? Yes, Your Honor, I believe my client paid income tax on this money. However, the taxability of that income is irrelevant when it comes to HUD regulations and exclusions that we're speaking. Well, just from a 50,000 foot level, doesn't the fact that your client paid income tax on the money support the conclusion that the money is income? It may support the, the conclusion that the money is income, but the exclusions are ultimately all almost all of them include things that otherwise look like income. There's an example, for instance, about foster care parents under the exclusion of uh, Section 5.609C2. 
we're going to essentially exclude the money that these uh, people receive for the care that they're providing to the foster uh, people. That may be taxed, it may otherwise look like income that should be incorporated, but HUD has determined that there's various ways, developmental disability under C-16, foster care under C-2, that will ultimately uh, be excluded for these policy reasons. Council, I just want to make sure I'm clear on the facts. Do the parties agree that if your client had simply hired a third party outside help, that she would qualify for this exclusion? So, I mean, is that true? That 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 all? I shouldn't say all she has to do, but that that is one option she has that would put her in compliance, at least as far as Section Eight is concerned. I believe that is what respondent is saying, and I would I would agree that that is one way that it could be excluded because again, the focus here is that all of the amounts paid by the state are excluded. So it it the the primary focus is not on how that money is ultimately allocated. If one family decides to pay third-party providers and one family decides to stay in the home, say both of those get 73000 it's excluded because all of that is going to the cost that the state has determined is needed to keep So your point is it, she could do that, but the whole point of the waiver is that it gives her options for how she provides that care, and no matter what the option she chooses, regardless of the option she chooses, it's exempt under your, your uh, theory. That's correct, Your Honor. Does, the the does entire amount is paid. Does it make any difference that Minnesota DHS, which created CDCS, this DD form of DD waiver, actually tells people that if a parent or spouse is paid, the family earns more money and that increase in income may affect household eligibility for public housing? I think that, that that indication there is essentially just a cautionary warning to recipients. It's not necessarily comprehensive income or tax advice on how this is going to. But doesn't it tell, I mean, it seems like your argument is about what this Minnesota created waiver means, the benefits it's going to provide. And if the agency that created the waiver, well, the legislature did, but then the agency that's applying it actually tells people that this is gonna affect your public housing subsidy because it's income to you if the parent is paid. Doesn't that tell us something about what the purpose of the statute was? Well, Your Honor, first, I, I don't believe it says specifically public housing because that does get to your, or, or Section 8. Okay, all right. Well, with that being said, I, I do believe that the, the state is, is providing this advice to the people at how it's gonna affect them. They aren't necessarily aware of every HUD regulation. For instance, they're not aware of C-16, that there are specific regulations out there that will categorically exclude the amount that is, is being determined here. Um, again, it's not a comprehensive thing. I think the, the county and the state wants to identify that people may be affected by this, but they, again, may not be aware of everything out there that will address that particular issue at hand. Council, is there, I mean, I know there's some issue about what's in the record, what's not in the record in terms of certain documents, but I'm trying to get a, a handle on what we know from the record about HUD's position on this. It sounds like from your opponent's brief, they say, well, HUD put in an amicus brief in that Riley opinion that supports um, Scott County's position. Is that in the record, or what do we know about HUD's position, and is it in the record? 
There's nothing about HUD's position in the record. Uh, that was an amicus brief that was submitted in this California Riley case. That case, from my understanding, has not been heard by the California Supreme Court yet. Um, so as it relates to here, uh, there's nothing in the record. Um, it's essentially right now that is just standing, that amicus brief in Riley is essentially just standing as a litigation point. They've, they've inserted themselves into an open case, basically picked a side and said this is what we're going to go with. Uh, I think that there's some issues with that in the idea that this regulation was, uh, the interim rule was put forth in 1995 and the final rule had no changes and it was finalized in 1996. That's a, that's a time of, it, of the Clinton administration, things that were going on then. Now we have interpretations being put out by HUD uh, under the Trump administration. These are two completely separate administrations identifying a regulation and how it should be interpreted. So no, there's nothing in the record now. What has been submitted is something that's out of a completely different administration and it's at this point just a litigation point versus the, if HUD wants to submit something uh, that ultimately relays its opinion, it can certainly go through the rulemaking process, notice and comment, which I think would be essential here, because rather than simply just agreeing with one side, the uh, HUD could understand the impact and the consequences that a certain interpretation such as respondents will have on these Section 8 recipients. Council, can you tell me what, what's the status of your client's voucher right now? I'm presuming things have just been stayed, so to speak. It's we're we're kind of in a holding pattern, pending resolution of this case. Is that correct? Actually, uh, the inclusion of this money has ultimately rendered her ineligible for the program as a whole, which I think is a very key point here because that's a complete unattended consequence of the of the plain language of the regulation. Here, we're trying to ensure the regulation states twice that the the purpose is essentially to keep the person in the home. Uh, this effect coming about as of this, based on this interpretation by respondent, completely defies that purpose. It's rendered them ineligible for the program, therefore they're subject to market rate rent, which we know is extremely difficult here in Minnesota right now. Um, of course, and from there, they're subject to eviction and homelessness. This developmentally disabled person is subject to being put out on the street and or institutionalization. Both of those things are what the regulation is hoping to avoid. Would that change if she made the determination to to simply hire out help to, to care for her son? And, and I guess I'm asking, again, kind of big picture, you know, understanding the difficulty in securing a Section 8 voucher, particularly in the Twin Cities. I mean, Section 8's hard to come by, particularly a three to four bedroom or whatever she has, she must have something along those lines. Those are even harder to come by. Definitely. And once you're out of the program, the waiting lists are long and many times the waiting lists are closed, sometimes for years at a time. Very true. Um, and so given all that's at stake, um, which, well, I don't know if there's a question in there. I'm concerned that is she able to, would she be able to uh, requalifying for the program under your understanding were she simply to hire this work out? Yes, I think the short answer to that is yes, under the respondent's interpretation, she would be able to hire out uh, this work and she would be able to stay in the home. I think what that does though is that narrowly construes the consumer directed aspect of the CDCS program. It narrowly construes the, the regulation because the purpose is to be able to provide, give these people the opportunity to utilize the services and equipment and the amounts paid by the state to keep this person in the home and use that the way they see is best fit. 
Um, so I think she would ultimately, after going through that whole process of, of reapplying for Section 8, she would most likely qualify. And, and we're not arguing that um, hiring outside third parties would have any sort of negative effect on her. We certainly understand that that would uh, allow her to remain in the program. It's just that how it how the regulation applies to uh, Miss Ali is not overbroad. It she fits well within that. Well, Council, tell me what's your best argument for your interpretation of the word um, uh, of the phrase that's at issue here that that it means more than simply reimbursement because that went mean when you just kind of read it at face value that's initially how it seems to to read. Yes. Yeah, so there's a couple different ways to attack that. First off, I think. In going with respondents' interpretation in the Court of Appeals' affirmance of that, they've impermissibly added words to the regulation to identify what cost means, adding the words monetary and incurred. There must be a monetary expense incurred or an out-of-pocket expense incurred before something can be reimbursed or offset. I don't believe the phrase to offset the cost, and, it, and, and it's important to keep to offset the cost of services and equipment needed. Uh, I think it's important to keep the rest of that in there because it identifies that that the cost goes beyond uh, just a monetary cost. Equipment, you certainly go to a store, you go online, you pay money, and you're going to get this product and uh, get a product back. Whereas the services identifies that this goes beyond just a monetary cost. You don't simply pay, whether it be someone in an appellant's position or a third-party provider, you don't simply pay them to knock on the door and show up and just walk away. You're paying them for the expense of time, labor, effort. Uh, as Amicus has identified, there's lack of sleep, uh, tons of tolls on your uh, personal life that come with that cost. So services, the, the state determines the amount that is needed, the cost that it's going to keep this person in the home and the services and equipment provided. I think that phrase, to offset the cost of services and equipment, identifies what's being paid and why. We know who's paying it, the, the state, and it identifies what's being paid and why. We're not simply ignoring that phrase. We just don't believe that it uh, is the operative phrase that ultimately then narrowly construes it. And just one last point, I, you know, in researching the uh, definition of the word cost, I've come across it several times where it says uh, price or expense. Researching what expense means, that goes beyond just monetary. It's money, time, labor, effort, resources, all of that. So I do believe that the regulation as a whole, it's written to be expansive to cover a situation like the appellants here. Council, in C4, the word cost is used. Yes. Um, it says amounts received by the family that are specifically for or in reimbursement of the cost of medical expenses for any family member. How does the use of the word cost in C4 cut? Um, I'm going to ask uh, opposing counsel the same question. Yes, and, and that, is, that is a good example. First, I think if, if C16 is read the way respondent argues, then it will be essentially just a surplus of C4. C4 uses specifically for or in reimbursement of. These are very monetary terms. That, coupled with that, that portion of the regulation was also written, and, and several other portions of the regulation were also written prior to C16. So that, that example under C4, uh, I believe there... There's a couple other examples here, C8, uh, subdivision 3. Yeah, but they, let me make sure I understand your argument under C4. 
Mm -hmm. um, it does say reimbursement for or in reimbursement of. How does that cut? Does that suggest that cost is something that is for or in reimbursement of? Or are you saying something something different? No, I'm saying that specifically for reimbursement of means a, a monetary cost. I think that's very clear there. So does it, that suggest that C-16 refers to monetary cost? It suggests that C-16 refers to monetary cost, but things beyond just simple monetary cost. Because again, if if it was if C-16 was only monetary cost, then it would just be surpluses of C-4. Because we're essentially just taking care of the medical expenses to keep this person in the home. Well, it's it's actually to pay for the care for the person. That's not a medical expense necessarily. It, it's providing all kinds of personal attendant services. Which is why I think that demonstrates that this goes beyond just what C4 is covering. Oh, I thought you were just making the argument that the only thing that's reimbursed under 16 is a medical cost. And I just don't think that that's necessarily the no, case. No, I'm actually saying the opposite. I think it does go beyond it. Medical expenses may be covered under C16, but it also goes beyond that and, and all the other care and services that are necessary. And let me make sure I understand your point under C2. You mentioned foster children and foster adults. Yes. Um, that seems to be an exclusion from income irrespective of whether the money is going, well, it wouldn't go to a legal family member because the, the person being cared for is a foster child or adult, right? Yes. So if Cindy Ali's son were instead a foster child, um, all amounts she received would be excluded from income? Can you say that last part again? If Cindy Ali, if the person in Cindy Ali's home was not her own biological child, but a foster child, then any amounts she received for care of the foster child would be excluded as income? Yes, yes, I would agree with that statement. And I, and again, counsel, I think- Is it also the same if it were an adopted child, an adoption subsidy, I believe is also excluded from income? I'm not entirely sure on that one, Your Honor. I'm sorry about that. Well, I think Justice McCaig may be referring to um, C-12, which says adoption assistant payments in excess of $480 per adopted child. Okay, yes, I would, I would argue that that money would be excluded then. So I guess this is my kind of thinking on C-16 and just to, just to give you a sense to kind of respond. And it kind of goes to the last two questions because it seems like the money they're talking about here is not money going to the parent, but it's going to the child of, as a member of the family. As, whereas in adoption and foster care, that's not the case. It's actually going to the care provider. Correct. And so what's being excluded here, is, and under the regulations, any income coming to the family, whether you're the parent or the child, is counted as income. Correct. And so it's excluding this income going to the child but it doesn't specifically say that if you take that money that goes to the child and the child pays the parent to take care of you, then that's not income. That's the difference between those to me. And why am I, th why am I, why am I thinking about that wrong? That the money being paid from the child to the, the parent. The money from the state's going to the child as a member of the Correct. family. Correct. And then the child essentially, through its parent, is paying the parent. Correct. So there's kind of two transactions going on. And so why doesn't that, tell us then that it's actually the, the money going to the parent is actually income to the parent. Why aren't those two different things? Well, because again, I think we have to bring it back to the, the, it's, the focus is the amounts being paid by the state. Whatever the state determines is the cost to keep that person in the home, however that's allocated, must be excluded. And that would, that would be the ultimate rule of law that I would be asking for this court to uh, 
create is that once the state determines the amount that's going to be the cost to keep this person in the home, it must be excluded by the housing authority. There's no discretion for the housing authority to then. But how is that any different from what I'm saying? What I'm saying is, yeah, it has to be excluded because it's going to the extent that it's going to the child. Yes. But yes. then the child is making a different choice. The choice the child, you know, it's weird to call it, but child through the parent is making is either to pay a third party or to pay his parent. I think we stop at when, what the state determines as a cost. I don't think it really matters after how that money is being allocated for the argument that I'm trying to make. Whether the money, yes, it's being used for the best interest of this developmentally disabled person and it's going to that household. And I think that's where it stops. The exclusion kicks in once the state determines what that amount is. How it passes through various entities after that shouldn't matter. I have a question, and it relates back to what Justice Hudson was asking. Um, do we, does the record tell us, was your client evicted from Section 8 housing, or is it all sort of on hold? It's not on hold. Uh, she wasn't evicted. She ultimately lost her voucher, and now she's, uh, from my understanding, working with Habitat for Humanity to find And housing. so if you are successful, does she get put back on a list and then have to wait for the years to pass, or... Will she get back her spot that essentially she had in getting the subsidized housing? Once she's removed from the process, especially for as long as it's been, I believe she would have to go through the, the full process again. She wouldn't be able to jump the waiting list line. Um, generally, we deal with these things in terms of terminations of an assistance. And yes, that person would have to uh, just go through the process again. I don't believe that she would be able to skip any sort of waiting list line if this court ruled otherwise uh, in, in our favor. Um, but because that determination has already been made that she's ineligible for that. So is this moot? I, is is this still an active controversy? It's, have, it, it's certainly not moot in terms of the impact that it's going to have on other people that are facing the situation. As it so capable of repetition is what you're saying? Yes, um, yes, okay. yes. I, our office works with uh, several housing authorities across our service area, and so we, we're going to come across these interpretations and how this is going to affect these types of families moving forward. Well, wait a minute. I'm Now you've got something on my radar that was not there before. I I thought the this was a, an appeal from the uh, hearing officer's decision that went to the court appeals and then came to us. Are you saying if we issue an order in favor of your client, it's not going to have any practical impact on her? It would have impact on her in terms of if she did wish to apply for the program again, she would know that she can utilize the resources now the way we're arguing that they should be, that the entire amount should be excluded and she wouldn't have to uh, worry about being deemed ineligible for the program on that basis. So it certainly would have an impact. Well, I thought if we gave, gave an order in favor of your client, it would send everything back to the moment that the hearing officer made his or her decision. And your client would be then be in that position. If, are, if you, this are you conceding that your client isn't going to be in Section 8 housing if she wins this uh, decision? No, I'm not conceding that. I'm conce what I'm saying is that if she doesn't win this decision, she will always be ineligible as long as she's not able to, as long as she's trying to provide paid parent care. 
Um, if this court, again, if this court rules in our favor, it will deem that she's, an, she's eligible again for the program, and should she wish to apply, I believe we would have an argument. Not just eligible again, but that she was eligible until her income got cranked up. Yes, yeah, she was eligible until her income, until this income was included. And so I think that if this court issues a decision stating that that income was properly improperly included, then the argument could be made that she should be able to be placed back in the program. Well, I, I don't mean to tell you how to argue your case, your client's case, but I would certainly be saying that she's restored to the position she was in when the case started. Well, and and that is certainly one one argument for sure I, if she wishes to go back into the program this this appeal has taken time and she was deemed ineligible and so she had to figure out what she was going to do uh, within the last year and a half if this because as it stands she's ineligible for the program and she wants to provide care for her child if this court rules otherwise and that that money would be excluded she could I, I know what happens if your client program. loses. Yes. I, I just want to make sure I understand what your position is and what happens if your client wins and whether or not this is a moot case. The position that I take if my client wins is that she would be deemed eligible for the Section 8 program again should she wish to reapply because she's been deemed ineligible. Our we could certainly argue that she should never have been deemed ineligible in the first place and how that would have to play out in the courts. I'm not sure if the housing authority refused, but if this court gives an order that she's eligible, I think the housing authority would go along with that. I think the greater impact as well beyond Miss Ali is that there are several other uh, families that are within the Section 8 program that this is going to affect. And if there's another family that's affected by this interpretation the way Miss Ali was and rendered ineligible, that is again cutting across the goal of the regulation as a whole. So your honors, I, I first I argue that the plain language uh, resolves this case. I believe that the, the regulation as a whole identifies that once the amounts paid by the state are are determined to be the cost that's going to keep this person in the home, they must be categorically excluded, regardless of how they're allocated. If the court uh, finds that this uh, regulation cannot, the interpretation cannot be understood based on the plain language, and it finds this regulation is ambiguous, I do point the court's attention to the rulemaking record, the interim rule, and the final rule. Uh, there's language there that identifies that the, the purpose here is to encourage these families and not punish them. Uh, there, I understand respondent identifies that the Section 8 program is to promote self-sufficiency, but self-sufficiency is not promoted if a family is going to be deemed ineligible from the program. Uh, the exclusion would have to apply to be able to promote self-sufficiency. Um, the can I, can I ask one other question? So. I'm just trying to think about how this plays out. So if we rule in your favor and say that um, this income doesn't count, and then the feds, as they've indicated, say actually that's not the law, could they come back to the state and require the state to reimburse the federal government for the, th this income? I don't believe that's how it would work. Right now, again, I think this stands as a, as a litigation point by the feds uh, and HUD. And if HUD, it, so the states are, able to interpret it how they they find necessary and appropriate uh, on 
HUD's remedy to address a court's decision to the contrary to what they believe would be to again go through the rulemaking process and correct how that interpretation has been made. I, again, just pointing back to the rulemaking record, one important piece of the final rule that was promulgated uh, identifies that the, the state, HUD is giving authority to the state solely to identify what developmental disability means. And once the state makes that determination, the, the state, the, the housing authority is then supposed to consider this family eligible for the exclusion. I believe the background of the rulemaking record coupled with the, the entire language of the regulation as a whole identify that there's no authority here for the housing authority to go in and dissect the state's decision after they've determined that $73,000 is a cost to keep this person in the home. Thank you, counsel. You have seven oh, minutes for rebuttal. I'm sorry, Your Honor. That's all right. You. You're good. Thank you. We'll see you on rebuttal. Mr. Alsop. So, Mr. Alsop, what's your, your response? I mean, you're hearing some concerns from myself, Justice McCaig and Justice Lillehog, about mootness, and I think that's because we all thought, or let me speak for myself, I, I thought what Justice Lillehog thought, which is that she was still in housing and this would, depending on how we ruled, it would go back. It sounds like that's not happening. So, what's your, tell me what your thought is on this mootness issue. On that issue specifically, Your Honors, I agree with Justice Little Hogg that this is a appeal of a hearing officer decision which essentially reviewed a decision of the CDA. If this court reverses that decision, we have to reverse it down below. So uh, she would have a voucher at that, at that point. But I think that Mrs. But, but hold on, and what does that mean? Um, because your voucher program is closed in terms of taking new applications and probably will be closed for some time. So does she go back in the spot she was in? Um, because to put her at the end of the waiting list, you know, she, she'll be 80 by the time she sees a Section 8 voucher. I, I'm not prepared for that answer. I, I, I could look to my client, maybe get some more directive in terms of the mechanics of it. But the program's closed right now, though, right? Pardon me? You're not accepting new apps. Scott County is not accepting new. Yeah, there's a waiting list. That's what Absolutely. I thought. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so it does her no good to go back at the end of the waiting list. Correct. I agree. No, I, I would think there'd be, she maybe be put at the top of the waiting list. I'm not sure. To be honest with you, I'm being totally honest with the judges. But We the, appreciate the point, that. <laughs> the point that we're trying to make is that this isn't a punishment. The whole purpose of the Section 8 voucher yeah, but counsel, program. before you leave mootness, um, do you agree that this this issue is capable of repetition? In other words, there are other cases implicating it? Absolutely. And as far as evading review, it takes a while for this to work its way through the system, does it not? Absolutely. Would you agree this issue is capable of repetition yet evading review? No question. Thank you. Yep. Uh, but to the point of is she being punished or not being punished? Um, the Section 8 voucher program creates a safety net for people who need housing assistance. They define what that level, where that safety net is. It identifies it as 40% of median income for the, for, the, uh, for the area. 
um, once you enter, that your eligibility is determined once you get off the waiting list and enter it. Once you're in the system, your rental subsidy is based on multiple things. It's a combination of your family size, what rental housing you go to, where do you rent your property from, and yes, even the income. And the point that we've been trying to make here is that uh, the income that she receives from the state, personal income that's taxable, counts towards that income because she is becoming self-sufficient. That puts her above a level that it, it, she doesn't need the assistance anymore. She has a combination of SSI, child support. But uh, doesn't that defeat the whole purpose of the exclusion? I mean, the whole point of the exclusion, it seems to me, is that you take this income, yes, it's income to her, um, as evidenced in part by the fact that she's taxed on it. But but the whole point of the exclusion, it seems to me, is that HUD has said, because we want to foster these kinds of arrangements, um, we're going to exclude that from income. So I, I agree with you that it's income, but the question is but whether or not it's excluded from her annual income. Let's start with the basics. The definition of income for purposes of HUD is very broad. It includes all benefits received, but we're not talking taxable income. We're talking SSI, we're talking child support, we're talking everything. So you can't pigeonhole C-16 as being simply income or something else. What our argument is that C-16 is directed at the benefit that is paid as a cost to third parties. That's why it's excluded. It's not because it's income. I mean, we're including her income because she's getting the benefit of, of income. I mean, that's real income. And I think the intent of the regulation as written, and if you're going to give meaning to all the words in the regulation, refers to an offset of cost. And with all due respect to the appellant, I think their interpretations give no meaning to those words. You know, they, they can characterize it any way they want in terms of proposition or prepositions, uh, going to an adjective, to an object in the noun or something like that. But the bottom line is they have determined or their interpretation is that it has no functional uh, limitation within the regulation. Our position is the regulation has four components. There's a payment from the state to a member of a family with a disabled individual to offset the cost of services and equipment to keep that child needed to keep the child in. There's four elements. The only element that's at issue in this case and has not been explained by the appellant is the third element, and that's the cost to the offset the cost of services and equipment. We rely on the plain language of the regulation. The court is well aware of how the process works for statutory interpretation. It's a de novo review, obviously, um, and, the, and the law requires you to look at the plain words and consider all the words. Um, I know there's, uh, it's our position that we do look at all the words. We, we look at and give meaning to the word cost. We give meaning to the word offset. Um, and as Justice Lillehog pointed out before, you can look to other areas within the, the exception or 5.609 to identify other areas where cost is identified and it's referred to or references a monetary or charge or expenditure or whatever. 
Um, so hi, I wanted to ask you the same question I asked opposing counsel. Take a look at C4, yes. which deals with cost of medical expenses. Yes. Now, in that case, the regulation makes very clear, I think, that it's talking about essentially third-party payments. I suppose you could have someone whose parent is a, a child whose parent is a medical doctor, and you could, and somehow the doctor still gets paid for taking care of the child. But basically it says uh, amounts received that are specifically for or in reimbursement of the cost of medical expenses. That's pretty specific. It's very specific, yes. Whereas 16 is nowhere as specific. So how, how does that cut? It, well, I'll, I'll say two things to that, uh, Your Honor. Uh, number one, they were written at different times. That's number one. Number two, it talks about a reimbursement. I don't think C16. Wait, which came first? Uh, four or 16? Four. four. I think C16 clearly does not require reimbursement. This family is not going to pay out money directly to these for these services and, and whatever. It's just a cost that they have. So reimbursement, maybe that's why they took out reimbursement. Technically, I think they're the same in terms of the intent, that there has to be some kind of charge or cost that's in place here. Uh, so your, your argument that 16 was written after four, I guess I could, one could probably argue that the other way by saying <clears throat> the, the HUD regulators knew specifically how to talk about reimbursement when they wanted to do so, and they did so in four, but they didn't do it in 16. I don't, th I, I, I don't think it is a reimbursement in 16. I, I don't think it's reimbursing. It's, it's, it's covering the cost or charge that might be applied to, to the uh, reimbursement to me <coughs> contemplates actual out-of-pocket expenses, and then I'm going to get reimbursed. That's not happening in the state program uh, at all. There's no way a Section 8 family is going to be able to cover these types of expenses and ask to be reimbursed. It does clearly cover an offset, uh, that it's trying to offset the cost of these services or equipment, um, which is so, so how does that work? How does that work then count? How does an offset work as opposed to reimbursement? I'm Ex sorry? How, in your view, does an offset work as opposed to reimbursement? Ex I just want to hear that ex explanation. I, I think that a offset is merely applying to a charge or, or uh, obligation that the family has. It's going to offset that. It's going to it's going to it's going to give it to them. Um, a the reimbursement state, the is the state. You're saying the state pays in place of right, exactly. the parents' pay. Yes, exactly. Okay, that's what I was trying to get at. That's the that's the offset. That's what I was trying I'm to get sorry. at. So, okay, isn't this isn't that whole sentence though just descriptive of what different state? I mean, different states do. They not every state has a CDCS. Not every you know they all. It's under the DD waiver which you can apply for to the feds, but then they can create a program and Minnesota's created the CDCS. Isn't this describing that kind of program? Aren't we looking at the words a little too um, granularly here? I, isn't it just that the kind of program we're talking about here is one where the state agency to, uh, pays a family member, pays money to a family member who has a dis developmental disability, is living at home, and it's, it's the type of payment that's used to offset these services. I mean, that's what we're talking about. And then, and then the parent who gets paid stands in the same place as a third party who gets paid. That third party clearly has to pay income taxes. So the money's paid to the disabled, the family with the developmentally disabled person. 
and then pays a third party, that third party is paying income taxes, right? And so yeah. the parent should be paying income taxes. That it, it seems like we're digging into these words much too granularly, and what's actually being said here is just describing the type of program of which CDCS is one of them, but another state might have a different kind of program. I, I think what the justice is trying to say to me is that, <laughs> is that the program itself, which clearly, and I was gonna preface my remarks today by saying this is a great program. There's nothing wrong, it's fantastic. And if that intent of HUD, the Secretary of HUD, was to simply do a blanket, if money comes from these organizations or these types of benefits to keep a disabled person there, simply say that all payments from a state agency paid for that. Benefit. Or actually say it like you did, like they did for foster care. Payments received for care of foster children. Care received for your child who gets this DD waiver. Period, yes. The fact that they've added language to that, that does, is a functional uh, criteria for the payment being made uh, there has to be some meaning for that. And the meaning is that we get to look and determine where those payments are being made. And if it's a payment for a service or uh, outside expense, uh, it's exempt. Uh, and can I just ask one other question, just the way the program works? Because we've been talking about if she's, ex there's a waiting list. So if, if Ms. Ali stays in housing with this Section 8 voucher, even though she's getting the $33,000. Does that mean someone who's making a lot less money is not getting a housing voucher? Absolutely. And I wanna clarify something for the record. It was not this CDCS payment that made her ineligible. Um, she ported to the CDA in 2016. As I indicated, there's multiple factors that go into the rent subsidy equation. Um, after 2016, these factors changed for her. Number one, she got uh, admitted to the CDCS uh, program, which granted her these $32,000 worth of, of benefits. She already had some SSI income that was counted towards her uh, total income. In 2018, um, she had a fifth child and she wanted to get a larger unit. So she went to the CDA and said, can I get a larger unit? They worked diligently with her to make sure, you know, would she still have a rent subsidy? How is this all gonna work out? But if you look in the record under APP.008, it is clearly in 2017, she got notice of what her rent subsidy was gonna be in 2017. That included the CDCS payment. And she was still the recipient uh, of a rent subsidy and still on the program. It wasn't until 2018 when she started looking at other places to live, she had another child and her child support went up $14,000. Her total income from SSI, uh, the CDCS program, uh, child support, things like that, well exceeded, well exceeded uh, the 40% median income uh, which is a threshold for a voucher holder. And to your point, uh, Justice. Can I just clarify that? So you're saying that if she hadn't received the income from the CDCS payment, she would still not qualify? Pardon me? If she hadn't received the CDCS payment, that $32,000, she still wouldn't have qualified for Section 8? Today? Yeah, well. Yeah. 
I mean, no, she, she got the payment from CDCS and she's still qualified as a voucher holder she, in 2017. It, oh, and then you're saying with this additional 14,000 in income, then she wasn't. That put her over but, the top. But the converse isn't true. Had, she, had you not counted the CDCS payment, she would still qualify. My, my, my point is clearly it impacts her ability to get a voucher, but it wasn't the, the thing that broke the camel's back. And it's also important to note there's this reference in, in their briefs to, well, it threatens her housing, it threatens the son possibly going to institute being institutionalized. Again, based on the standards established by HUD, if you do count this income, which is income to her, this is money she has in her pocket, she has the capability and, ha and is living uh, at home in a, in a house uh, and not having to uh, institutionalize her son. This interpretation does not impact, impede, discourage the CDSCS program. She has all those benefits still there. So, uh, Council, it looks like either way we interpret this regulation, there's going to be kind of a perverse result. And you pointed out, if we interpret in, in favor of appellant, then somebody, who, uh, a parent who works outside the home doesn't get the same benefit. On the other hand, if we... Um, if we interpret it uh, in favor of the respondent, then what she could do is, instead of caring personally for a child, spend all that money on a third-party provider, then that wouldn't count toward income for Section 8. Isn't that right? Correct. So instead of being at home with her child, she could, I, I, I shouldn't refer to Ms. Ali, but some recipient could just say, I'm going to spend my day um, at the Caribou reading a book. And that, that. But then her, the money wouldn't be count, counted toward her income. That's true. Because it was paid to a third-party provider. Does that make any sense? Um, it's consistent with how the regulation is written. And, and one of the overall purposes, and we talked about self-sufficiency. I applaud Ms. Ali going out and applying for Social Security and getting the requisite paperwork to get that benefit. I applaud her for going out and taking the appropriate action to get childcare. I applaud her for taking the initiative to stay at home and get paid to take care of her child. That's what Section A is looking for. So the fact, I, I agree with you, Justice Little Hog, that uh, to, to it, it appears that this is promoting going out and getting third parties to take care of your kids in order to stay a recipient. Well, that's not the interestingly, case. C18 doesn't use the term self-sufficiency, but it does seem to indicate there's a policy in keeping de developmentally disabled family members at home. Would you agree with that? I would agree with that. So if, if the term cost of services is ambiguous, which, uh, which interpretation best fulfills the policy of keeping dis developmentally disabled family members at home? I'm not asking you to concede that there's ambiguity here, <laughs> but if we assume arguendo that that phrase is ambiguous, right. which interpretation best um, fulfills the policy of keeping develop developmentally disabled family members at home? The policy is to treat recipients of Section 8 equally, and my interpretation does that. They both keep the child at home. They both, they, like I said, they don't impede the benefit. The benefit is there. The child's going to be at home no matter what. It's either going to be a third party or it's going to be the parents. The benefit is there. 
What it does Council, do we, do we, should we take, Council, should we take into account, though, that it does um, undermine the waiver program in the sense that that program gives individuals the option of how they're to do that. And so it seems to me there's at least tension between how Section 8, how Scott County is interpreting the HUD regulation and the the goal and the purposes and the, the the format, if you will, of the of the waiver program. I, I guess I don't see that. I, I, I... Well, you're forcing, aren't you forcing individuals into, um, in order to have that income excluded from uh, that money excluded from their income? Aren't you forcing them into? Hiring that, hiring out those services, as opposed to handling it themselves. Well, let me let me make clear first of all that this is a HUD program, and their exclusions are intended to promote their objectives, and 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 whatever. To the extent it impacts a state program, I, I, I'm not sure if that's relevant to this court. But number two, I don't think it does. The CDCS, in its own guidebook, identifies this as a possible ramification of working at home. It specifically tells its participants, if you take this uh, benefit in the form of working at home and getting an income, number one, it's gonna be taxable. Number two, it could impact your other benefit-related or your income-related benefits, and it specifically tells them. Now, this is a lot of money, and they have financial advisors, they have other advisors that tell people what to do and how to do it. Council, who just just help me? You used initials, so who use words? Who is it that's giving this advice? The CDCS program, which is the state program that offers this seventy-three thousand dollars. This is the Department of Human Services. Correct. Okay, and is that in the record somewhere? Yeah, I, I, it's in my brief that cites to their manual, which I think is on, online. Council, it seems it, to me that perhaps what we're doing is that we're focusing on the section eight portion of the argument, and I think what you're saying is that take out Section 8 argument, if you're looking at the CDC benefit, that that does not change. Correct. The, the interpretation, whether it's theirs or ours, the benefit's there. They're going to get the, the $77,000 in benefits, whether it's counseling, whether it's training, whether it's a respite relief, whether it's education, or whether it's income for an in-home care, the benefit's there. There's no impact on the benefit. It's our interpretation, it's our regulation for purposes of regulating how to treat participants in the Section 8 voucher program equally, number one, but recognizing uh, the, the advantages of, of uh, uh, benefits for disabled care, or care for disabled people and keeping them in the home. Uh, but when someone gets an actual income that can be used for other sources and, and is not equal to someone who else is working outside the home, uh, they gotta be treated equally. And that's the purpose of this interpretation. That's identified in the uh, Riley case. I think the Riley case is very persuasive. Council, when you say but can be used for other sources, how do you know that or how do we know how they're using it? My understanding is CDCS develops a plan with the individuals and determines what kind or 
helps them determine what kinds of services are best and how to go about doing that. But I'm hearing you suggest that maybe recipients are using this money for quote unquote other sources. And I'm wondering how you know that and, and what, do you, what do you base that on? Maybe I misspoke. Um, the CDCS identifies a budget for a participant. Um, how they do that, to be honest, I don't know how they do it. It's, it's, a, it's a means of identifying uh, what is necessary for this family to care for this disabled person. I don't think whether they are on Section 8 or not on Section 8 ties into that number. That doesn't answer your question. However, once you get that budget, they have on their manual and on their website what are acceptable uses for that. And again, it's a very, very wide range of things they can do with it. It can be, you know, like I said, respite care. From that list, the, the, the participant decides how they want to allocate the budget and spend the money with the advice and, and whatever. The CDCS does not tell them where to put it or how to tell it, but they Council, could you could you point to me in the manual that where this gives some warning that you've got to watch out for losing your Section 8? It doesn't say specifically Section 8. I think uh, Justice... It's on page 29. Yeah. It says public housing. I've got that in front of me. It does say public housing. Okay. But that, that is where, uh, again, this part of their manual, it specifically advises them to be careful that this uh, benefit to the extent you use it and get paid, pay yourself, uh, which is totally allowed. Uh, there may be ramifications, not only public housing, but other public benefits that they receive. So they're forewarned. Um, before my time runs out, we've gone about, we beat to death the plain meaning part of this. I also think that the public purpose <clears throat> or the purpose of Section 8 is uh, consistent with our interpretation of the regulation. If somehow uh, this court is still scratching its head, I think under the Kaiser decision, uh, it has the ability to look to HUD for what is the appropriate interpretation. And there I would refer to a couple things. One of the justices asked, where in the record does HUD put in there two, two cents? When Ms. Ali came to the CD, CDA staff to look for new housing because of a new child, things like that, they, and they found out about the CDCS payment, they went to the local regional office of HUD and this emails that are exchanged are in the record. Uh, and that is number one indicator of what's HUD's interpretation of this. But more importantly, uh, HUD uh, offered the amicus brief in the Riley case. Uh, they did it at the specific direction of the court. Uh, it was not on their own. I tried to get one here. Uh, and the timing issues just didn't work out, but that's their official interpretation. I suggest you give deference to that to the extent you think the regulation is still ambiguous. Thank you. Thank you, Council. Uh, Mr. Scott, you have seven minutes for rebuttal. Yes, thank you, Honors. And a few points that I just uh, wish to respond to. Uh, first off, respondent argues that the, the purpose of Section 8 and their, their purpose of uh, interpreting these regulations is to treat everybody equally. I don't believe that is uh, the purpose of Scott County here. 
uh, the, the purpose of the regulation is to encourage in-home care, particularly by family members. This isn't a situation where Scott County, again, as I mentioned previously, Scott County is one of several housing authorities. This isn't a situation where Scott County is determining unilaterally for all of these other housing authorities how people must be treated. Again, as I mentioned previously, this is a benefit that is okay for HUD to give to individuals that suffer developmental disabilities. HUD does that all the time to protect various people. Uh, so I don't believe the idea is to treat people equally. I think I've identified how even someone in appellant situation would be treated unequally. Speaking of uh, HUD, how do you respond to Mr. Alsop's argument that HUD has made its interpretation of C-16 clear? Well, again, I argue that that's just a, a litigation point, a convenient litigation at this point. Uh, respondent's interpretation of this regulation was actually identified uh, prior to the Riley case, understanding what's going on in Riley. They yeah, use but my Riley question, my question is, a, as a matter of law, to what degree should we take into account an administrative agency's interpretation when it's expressed, maybe by way of an amicus brief in litigation, as opposed to some formal clarification of its rule? As as this court is reviewing, the court certainly can look at this as, as one opinion or interpretation of the regulation. Can we take it into account as persuasive? I wouldn't concede that it's persuasive right now. I believe that this is something that this court is allowed to review de novo. You can look at that opinion, but again, it hasn't went through the rulemaking process. Well, but this counsel, you're, you're suggesting to us that we shouldn't look at the opinion of the agency in question, even as a persuasive, uh, from a persuasive point of view, when they were asked to make that submission by pursuant by the court, um, we assume that parties, even amicus, no, they're not parties, but even as amicus, that they um, take seriously candor to the court, and uh, and that HUD did that in this instance. So. Shouldn't we look at that at least as persuasive authority? If the court wishes to look at it as persuasive to understand where HUD currently sits, again, these are two different administrations, but if, if the court wishes to look at that, that's fine. But the more important uh, point is that the court is not bound by that. The court can certainly uh, review this de novo and understand whether that interpretation is reasonable. Again, the even, even so Scott County, again, is a subsidiary of HUD. Uh, HUD would be ultimately the agency that would receive any deference. Any sort of local field offices or anything like that, I don't believe that they are in the position uh, to raise fair and considered judgment of this interpretation. HUD would be the place to defer to. Uh, but even so, that, re that interpretation has to be reasonable. And again, I argue that this is an unreasonable interpretation because it's improperly applied. If respondent's interpretation is accepted, it's improperly applied to how people uh, may decide to give in-home care, how they may decide to allocate that in-home care. Here, uh, Ms. Ali elects 33,000. Uh, maybe another family decides to do 10,000. How do you address that issue? I think the only way to eat, treat people equally, as well as provide the full benefit to everyone who's utilizing a state program like this, would be to categorically exclude the amounts as long as they're being used for the purpose of keeping the person in the home and the, the services and equipment needed to do so. What if she took all $70,000? So she's getting $70,000 for her family 
I would again she can, still she can argue just keep seventy five seventy thousand dollars even though there's people making ten thousand dollars that can't get housing as a result. I would argue that yes, the seventy thousand dollars in its whole should be excluded again because the idea is that this money is being used for the to keep this person in the home. If Miss Ali was using seventy thousand dollars that the state has determined is the necessary a cost to keep this person in the home. If she's using that to do so, then it must be excluded. And I, I forget what justice it was, but they pointed out that there's there's not an uh, identification of how, uh, I know a respondent says that there's uh, there's these payments are being used for outside household expenses that may not necessarily be going to uh, the CARA, but I don't believe that there's any way of identifying that. So again, it would fall back on the idea that $70,000 is identified by the state, that's excluded. Council, can I ask just a, just a really broad question, but I, I'm wondering, um, do you folks talk? And when I say you folks, I mean um, entities like Smurls, the various uh, housing authorities, um, the Department of Human Services, because there was a time uh, when these entities talked with one another in some informal in ways over these kinds of, of issues. Does that still go on? Well, we certainly still have under Section Eight. We still have the hearing process. Uh, there is no. I, I mean outside. That, I mean outside of the hearing process. I mean talk. Correct. No, I. I didn't think to so. categorically <laughs> answer your question. No, I don't believe there is a, a process where we converse on how this is going to affect people. Uh, it, it essentially, in this case, it arose out of a an interpretation that we disagreed with, and we went from there. Um, I do find that when there is a possibility to speak with, uh, in, in particular public housing, those things are able to be resolved very well. Um, but here in Section 8, it seems to jump to this hearing process and, and we're adversarial right from the beginning. So unfortunately, no, I don't believe there is that time to communicate. If there's no other questions, Your Honors, again, I would ask that uh, once this, the, the court to uh, reverse the decision of the Court of Appeals, and identify that once the state determines the amounts that are paid to keep this person in the home, those amounts must be categorically excluded regardless of how they're allocated. Thank you, counsel. Thanks to both counsel for the help you provided to the court in this matter. This case is submitted. We'll issue an opinion in due course. We're in recess.